This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. Back in the dark room, talking more David Foster Wallace. Uh, the people like David, or they like David Foster Wallace content anyway. So we are bringing more to you again. Uh, we have with us, as we always do in the dark room, somebody who you know knows our subject a little better, a little different uh, than us, and that is the great Adam Lehrer. Adam, I you know I kind of like took a couple notes trying to think of how to describe you, and it's like every time I check in on you, there's some other huge new project. <laughs> Man, I'm a polymath. You are a polymath. It's true, yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, the most recent thing I saw was this 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 conceptual rock and roll album uh, under the name Botched Botched Chatification. The album That's called right. Masculinity Under Threat. Uh, <laughs> do yeah. people do check this out? It is. I haven't I haven't gotten my way through the whole thing, but I was like, holy shit, this is. <laughs> well, that's what's really cool about it is like we totally. I have this concept for a band, just like you know, screaming about uh, failed masculinity and like, um, you know, uh, you know, like uh, body dysmorphia in men. Mm -hmm. Because I think this is like really funny topics. Like we talk about this with women, but men are hit with just as many images of like what they're supposed to look like these days. Dude, dude, I grew up with little action figures that were yoked. You know what I mean? I know. (laughs) Six years old, I'm like, this is what a man's supposed to look like. You know? Yeah, 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 and um, yeah. Everybody has like, on one hand, really unrealistic expectations of what like beauty is, but also in the second hand, they're like so far away from even achieving just like a normal level of like health mm-hmm. or fitness. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's mm-hmm. like it's there's mm-hmm. such a gap. Most of these people, we have like just these two extremes in American life. Anyway, yeah, but 100%. like um. um you know, we, I, I wrote the lyrics, all the songs are really funny and certainly fit into my like project. Um, you know, one song is about Dylan Roof getting buccal fat removal and how that could have saved him. There's another song about uh, Knight Landsman, the art form publisher, who's like this really bizarre, uh, he looks kind of like a magic elf, but he was like a, like a 30 year long a uh, sexual harasser and rapist. Oh my god! I mean, who knows? Like, he might yeah. have just been like a perverted, weird guy, and then millennials mm. started getting hired at art for him, and like his harmless ribbing became internalized a different way. But it's still just a hilarious image because apparently he used to take girls to lunch 
and he'd be like, I, like bright red suit, like weird fucking elvish looking face, five foot three, and he'd be like, your, your boyfriend got a big fucking cock. Does he fuck you good with that cock? <laughs> so we wrote something about him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and everybody's just, their gears are grinding and going, wait, this guy must have something going on. If he's talking to me like that, he must, yeah. he must know somebody or. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, well, yeah. Thing, I mean, art form was a way better magazine under his reign of terror, but, um, but yeah, yeah. That, you know, we just we were just writing about men and just like the shit men go with, and then uh, and then what became even better is the songs turned out like really good and anthemic mm-hmm. and like loud and heavy. Yeah, and like you know the way we made that thing is like I was finishing my new book and I was just like looking for a distraction. So on Saturdays, you know, my dog was sick. There was so much ugly shit happening around here so just on saturdays like i'd go to beanstalk's house and he'd already have the music ready i would just like scream my fucking head off until the neighbors started yelling at us and then we'd go shopping when we finished okay okay (laughs) you know and we did that for like a month and a half and then we had the record and now we're like dude it's insane it's so easy to psyop people when you have like a little bit of a platform. There's a gallery in Australia who already mm-hmm. asked us to do like a music video for an exhibition they're doing. Okay. Even right offered on. to do shows. Like it would be fucking retarded if all the work that I've put in over the last few years, putting in these like massive books, endless mm-hmm. body of work, and the thing that makes me astronomically famous are these like full retard songs about art form rapists that took me cumulative (laughs) yeah yeah right right uh dude yeah hey listen i am just trying to fit in that (laughs) gif right you gotta come to the level come to where people are at yeah that's right that's true so so you got botched chatification happening uh you just said you've just finished your book is that uh, the conceptual manifesto for psychological warfare, or are you talking oh, no, about that another book? Been, that one's been done. Yeah, okay. I that one like a year ago. This is like a long, long novel. Okay. That I've been working for for about three years. Ah, right on, right on. We'll, we will look forward to that. What's that? Does that have a title? True Faith is the True title Faith. that I think I can announce that. Yeah, fuck it. Okay. You guys okay. got the first announcement. All right. Yeah. Look at that. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um. Yeah. So. So you've got those things going on you've got your podcast system of systems you've got the safety propaganda uh yeah. sub wait to Substack, right yep Substack and a record yep. label now yes yeah look at you man that's all aw- that's that's awesome that's yeah. awesome just killing it Elite uh bodybuilder yeah yeah for just that you literally are a polymath dude <sighs> that's awesome um well let's let's kind of talk about we'll talk about david foster wallace at least some here um one thing I had, you have this concept that you have have um, sort of shown examples of in your uh, on safety propaganda, uh, the notion of crypto transgression. Yeah. And I was curious and I, I do want to get to you have a great piece about David Foster Wallace, postmodern suicide. I do want to talk about that. But first, I, I'm fascinated with this concept of truth crypto transgression and i'm wondering if you can explain it and then can you tell us is there any trip crypto transgression in david foster wallace's work um to explain it crypto transgression is basically a recognition of systems of censorship and control but a way of subverting them by sort of uh encrypting and injecting um naughty or uh, transgressive themes into sort of like um, a place where they don't belong Mm. uh, in a way that counter signals the broader ideology of the thing that it becomes embedded in Mm. and also works in a way um, where it's like if you're not if you don't know what you're looking at it's going to go over your head but you can sort of, it becomes like a kind of encrypted communication amongst the real heads or whatever. Uh, and to answer the second question, absolutely, fucking David Foster Wallace is like an amazing um, 
perfect example of it because the guy was absolutely considered to be at the peak of what we can call New Yorker approved mainstream literature. I mean, the motherfucker was on the Rolling Stone hot list. And I mean, he was, he was huge. Like, I don't even know if, if people really remember this, but he was like a pop culture celebrity at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same fucking time, very few guys in the nineties. Um, well, no one at his level, really at his level of like literary importance and uh, broader cultural awareness, um, was that fucking weird. Uh, and in many ways, very avant-garde. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, he was weird. He was cool, but he was cri- he was critically accepted. He was popularly accepted. Yeah. Like he kind of hit all of it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like he's you know he's getting published all the time in Harper's and in all the really well-respected places. But at the same time, like if you like you know Dennis Cooper and Burroughs and that kind of stuff, you can absolutely make a case that David Foster Wallace is kind of be of your taste too. Mm-hmm. Amen. And, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, for me, like he was, I think he was the first writer that I sort of discovered in a, in a like personal uh, organic, though I hate that word kind of way. Like I remember reading about my, my uncle, my gay uncle, who was like my cool uncle, who was always like, you know, sending me records and shit like that. He got me like a subscription to Spin Magazine when I was really young. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember reading about David Foster Wallace in an article on Spin. And I was like, this guy sounds cool. But I didn't pick up Infinite Jest until I was in high school. And Infinite Jest had all these weird personal associations with me because I had just gotten a scholarship to go to the University of Arizona for track, which is where Hal in the fucking book goes for tennis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the private school where Hal first started smoking weed is based on Tabor Academy, which is where my brother went. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. 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 So yeah, uh, yeah. it was like, hmm. it was like, and I was also like an elite athlete who was also a total drug addict. Like there was all this personal associations mm-hmm. I made with the book. It took me a long time to read it. And I think that's how you're supposed to read it. You know, I think mm-hmm. it is a book that you might crank through the first hundred pages put it down and then go but it's almost like he created a book like a postmodern liter a, a work of postmodern literature it's almost like the bible where you mm. like come mm-hmm. back to it at different points in your fucking life it's like yeah. this gigantic endless thing that you'll yeah. never really pick up all the the detail in on first read yeah, I remember doing the research for the core episode in his sort of early correspondences uh, about Infinite Jest with his editor. He he David Foster Wallace says something like, I, I didn't realize you weren't supposed to write something meant to be read twice. Like he's like, I thought that was a completely realistic expectation that people would read it twice. And, you know. It, it isn't from a marketing standpoint. It's not a reasonable expectation. I love his ego, too. Like. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many fucking books out there. Like, I have a thousand books on my shelf right here that mm-hmm. I guarantee I'll never fucking read. Yep. Yeah. And same. he's like, yeah, yeah. no, I made this gigantic thing that you have to read at least twice, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, there is, a, there is a certain ego. And he's like a young man at that point. I mean, he, he'd had a, he'd had uh, up to Infinite Jest, he'd had a career that a lot of writers would envy, but he still was young. You know, he wasn't, he, he had a lot further to go before he'd have some, anything like what he would call success. And yet to yeah. just throw that out there, like, yeah, chew on this. And then, and then for it to sell hundreds of thousands of copies, there's like nobody in the world who would have predicted that, I don't think. No. Yeah. Um, I was curious about, you know, there's a lot of influences and there's always there's a lot of talk about like influence of Pynchon and, and various postmodern writers. I was curious and I, I'm just kind of guessing here, but I think this is I think this is in your wheelhouse. What do you make of the influence of Brett Easton Ellis on David Foster Wallace? What, how does their Venn diagram line up? Well, I know like um, DFW was very open about how much he loved Less Than Zero. 
Mm-hmm. Which makes mm-hmm. sense. He would have probably been just a little bit younger than Brett was. Mm-hmm. And um and you know, I think you can see that to an extent. It's just uh you know, certain Gen X sensibility is there, a certain focus on youth, on addiction, mm-hmm. um, on disconnect, on alienation. But at the same time, um their ambition is ultimately very different. Um, Brett, you know, is very, you know, he, he, what Brett says he reveres is neutrality, you know, mm-hmm. a chilly remove and distance from the work. I don't think, um, you know, David Foster Wallace is kind of like the perennial Sigma beta kind of hybrid. Um, I don't think he was capable of distancing himself. No, no, no. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, think that's, well, that, well yeah, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, that kind of carries us into this this great essay you have on David Foster Wallace. Um, I, I don't know if I've got the title. Postmodern Suicide. Is that what yeah. it's called? Yeah. 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 yeah and that's on that's 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 on your that's on your site. People do go check it out. It's uh, an excellent piece of writing, as I have come to expect from Mr. Lehrer. Um, you have. So you, you kind of connect him. It's mostly about David Foster Wallace, but you kind of connect him to the artist Mike Kelly and then uh, Mark Fisher. Who people... Yeah, there's a second part that I didn't send you okay. guys that uh, I get into that to that. OK, yeah. yeah. So so, yeah, you you kind of you kind of make this case and, and so, correct me if I'm wrong, I guess you're sort of making this case that based on David Foster Wallace's sort of. Uh, his sensibility, kind of the project he'd chosen for himself, that there's a certain inevitability to the way it ended. Yeah. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? What do you like? What is what is a postmodern suicide? Well, to me, it was very interesting that these guys were all sort of like um, responsible for creating, but also complaining about the postmodern disposition. Uh, and really sort of accurately identifying what postmodernism was um, in, in relation, especially in relation to the modernism that came before, sort of an absence of an absence of belief, an absence of hope for the future, an absence of forward thinking, all these things, and a sort of um, opening the floodgates to entertainment and using entertainment to wash out alienation. All these guys were talking about it. And yet they all fucking killed themselves within like the same five years. I couldn't help but find some sort of poignancy or meaning in that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think the thing with, you know, David has uh, so much contradiction in his work, you know, on one hand, he is saying, I, um, I long for meaning. I don't believe in irony. Uh, I long for sentiment. It's almost like he's, you know, at war with the own medication that he's taking. Like, I want to feel again, and yet Mm -hmm. I can't. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the same time, his work is loaded with fucking irony and cruelty. And like, you know, uh, one of the... the It's not sentimental. His work isn't... It's It's... It's completely unsentimental. Yeah, maybe not completely, but most almost entirely unsentimental. He has sympathy for the characters, but he also fully encourages us to laugh and make fun of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, a great example, I think, is that essay where he's at the fair mm-hmm. and uh, David Samuels, who was a teacher of mine, um, I think he's the editor of Tablet now, but he pointed this out to me that about halfway through the essay. David starts like writing in the style um, of their speak. Like mm. he calls it like the doggone like hot dog or some shit like right, that. Right, right, and he's right. Fully having a joke, like being the cool, rich, urban liberal, you know, shitting on these people and their sort of small timey um, pastimes. Mm-hmm. But at this, you know, and he's also saying, they're experiencing life, you know, and sentiment without the critical disposition of the postmodern ironist. So right. the thing that he reveres is right in front of him, but the 
supremely educated dick that he was still comes to the surface. Mm-hmm. There's this constant tug of war in his sensibilities. Like he can never truly decide what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, that reflects on what we came to sort of understand was his religion, uh, yeah. which is television. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Perfect reflection of that. Yeah. yeah. And that there is a tragic, I mean, this is maybe, I think in my early phases of reading, you know, I had a, what is almost cliche, a, a period of, you know, just absorbing all the David Foster Wallace material I could. I mean, this is er, wow, 2003, 2002, something like that. And I don't even think I recognized that tension yet. But now, now that I'm like kind of going back to this material and doing these episodes, I actually am. I feel like I'm relating to it in a totally different way because I, I feel honestly some level of that tension too. Just like you know, like I know I could find some more kind of momentary, sentimental, intimate meaning in my life if I could just somehow delete all of the shit that I've downloaded into my brain over the last twenty or thirty years, right? But I can't. Yeah, it's all and fucking if you could. If you, you could, know. would you push that button, Brad? Right. That's a good right. I mean, Adam, would you, if you could just wipe out like all your experiences of like the internet, let's say, with a button, Probably. would you do it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would love to be someone who like knew one band that I really loved mm-hmm. and uh, devoted my life to. Instead, I know like what, 60,000 fucking records and however, right. you know, like bits and pieces of everything. Right. Um, And then as a writer, too, and maybe, Adam, this isn't like this for you, but it's like this for me. It's like half the time when I'm consuming this stuff, I'm not even sure if I'm like actually like enjoying it or experiencing it anywhere close to what it's supposed to be. Or if I'm just like thinking about what my opinion is about it the whole time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like I'm. Yeah, like I'm watching all these Tarkovsky movies and most of them for the second time to prepare for an upcoming episode. And they're fucking beautiful. And at the yeah. same time, I'm like taking notes. I'm like, is this, this is not how I'm supposed to watch this, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I'll I'm do you one better. I, I, take, I take quotes down into my notes app so I can steal it later right. on. <laughs> right. I'm like right. consciously reading things just so I can steal it and pretend that I came up with it. <laughs> or not pretend. I'm, I'm right, doing but like use a, it. Yeah. It's a yeah. pastiche. It's yeah, right. yeah. I like, uh, I like yeah. to collage it. Yeah. Well, well, you're in good company with David Foster Wallace. His one, his early story, the one that's basically an episode of Jeopardy. He yeah. basically stole all of that dialogue from an actual, from like a talk, um, from a, I think it was an episode of the Tonight, uh, the Tonight Show or something, right? He actually yeah. got into like almost got into legal trouble for it. So you're in, you're in good company, I think. <laughs> Which is crazy because now that's like such an accepted practice, you know, and mm. an important sort of literary technique, you know, mm-hmm. we all, we use our direct experiences all the time. Like there's a, I'm really nervous about one chapter in my book because it is entirely one-to-one uh, an experience of my parents and um, I've never even brought this up with them as an adult. So I'm like freaking out about them seeing it, but mm-hmm. that's like a thing that we accept already yeah. that we use our own experiences, but we're living in fucking late modernity, digital world. Part of our experience is just the shit that we consume. Right. Right. You know? And yeah, so, to not yeah. use it, to not use it, you're like almost like selling yourself short or something. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And I and I applaud you know David for sort of making some of these devices accepted on like a higher literary scale. Mm-hmm. It had to be somebody. Mm-hmm. For sure, um, for sure. Can I know, read it? I listened oh, to the, I listened to the um, episode you guys did with the uh, Astro. Yeah, yeah, Astro. Astro, yeah, and yeah. um. There was some talk about whether he was a genius or not. I I am of the uh, extreme opinion that uh, yeah he was one hundred percent like mm-hmm. an a, an insane level genius. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm I, I'm around to that point, and I'm even sympathetic to people who like pick up Infinite Jest or whatever, and are like ah, it's not for me. 
which is fine yeah whatever but yeah i think clearly you're dealing with some high octane you know 180 iq kind of dude here for sure um i think it's hard to say otherwise yeah, I, I don't think he, i wouldn't contest that i'm not yeah. gonna play devil you know yeah 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 it's yeah. he's he's um can i read i'm gonna can i read a little bit of because I, I thought your your the postmodern suicide essay was great and oh, yeah. it really coalescing things i just want to read like a little bit of it and then maybe we can talk about it. i think it'll i think it'll generate some conversation yeah. All right. This is you start with a quote from David Foster Wallace. I think there must be probably different types of suicides, writes Wallace in Infinite Jest. I'm not one of the self-hating ones. And then this continues in your voice. The postmodern suicide is distinct in the sense that it is not a suicide of self-obsession. It cannot be dismissed or judged as the kind of weakness we might have historically projected onto suicide victims. Wallace continues, I just wanted out. I didn't want to play it play anymore, is all. The postmodern suicide then is a rational response to the con- con- uh, excuse me the contemporary conditions of the unsociety. Wallace, Kelly, and Fisher all unearthed the essential, tragic, and related truths about the unsociety. It was through their strength of thought and spirit that these thinkers were able to make these observations. Thus, postmodern suicides are at face imbued with a cosmic power that those who continue to live can't access. But is the postmodern suicide short-sighted, even if a rational response to the schizoid contradictions of the decaying unsociety? That's where things get more complicated. I, I love that whole thing, but I'm really into this part. The uh, a rational response to the schizoid contradictions of the decaying unsociety. I think I know what unsociety is. What is unsociety? The way I was kind of thinking about it is that... Um sort of the Baudrillardian simulacra thing in that we all sort of know in some sense that we're living in an era um, past politics, past Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. governance. You know, I I actually Instagrammed something about this today. I called it like my revised political position, which is basically everything I've said to you guys that has made you think I know what I'm talking about was a lie. I'm a fucking blowhard. I talk out of my ass and I amuse myself um, because in reality, I don't think I think to even think like that we have a possibility of changing our world in any way is um, is a falsity because Mm. it's all on its own logic. Now, Mm. no one is steering this ship. Uh, Maybe Elon Musk can get a grip on it, but we, you know, we'll have (laughs) to see. That is. Michael. That is sort of the black pill, right? I mean, I, I tend to think Oof. like the whole conspiracy theory world and there's plenty of that stuff that I think is credible or at least um, worth thinking about. Um, but I think there is a certain sense where like the black pill past that is like, no, man, nobody's running it. This whole thing is just out. It's, it's an algorithm. Somebody put an algorithm in place in the past and this I thing mean, is just running. Like by every economic measure our economy should have tanked in the last couple of years. It's completely like, artificial. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. <laughs> they just keep printing money when they started to realize that if you have like the world's mightiest military, yeah, you and don't will. really need to have economic, uh, economic um, stability. Yeah. Right. And not, no not, not just, not just the military, but the will to embroil yourselves and shed blood and print money indefinitely for 20 years and then just to leave just to yeah. bounce right yeah. it's, right. it's absolutely insane mm-hmm. yeah um this is sort of off topic but i was sure that you know us pummeling money into the conflict in ukraine was going to have some fucking uh was going to backfire and what happened fucking the whole in the whole eu is now a client state of the united states of america mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> I don't fucking get it. Maybe the maybe the fucking uh, ghouls know what yeah. they're doing. I mean, sure they're yeah. evil, but like they just know they're gonna win. I, yeah, I mean, the the right. the, the, the well, one it, thing very... is at mm. least they're competent. Somebody up there actually is maybe somehow, mm. even if sinister mm. and right. Various. <laughs> that's the that's the sort of frightening thing to think is that you can point at uh, U.S. foreign policy. And this isn't a political podcast per se, yeah, right. but of course, everything's post-political. So maybe it is yeah. a political podcast. Um, right. uh, but I mean, e- e- what if they're getting what they wanted? What if the foreign policy and the adventuring in the Middle East turned out exactly the way they wanted? Ugh. That's a very interesting thought right. experiment. 
Right. Uh, I think it, there's yeah. a large chance that that's true. Certainly, I, some people certainly some people got what they wanted out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, right. yeah, right. Yeah, well, really- and even if even if it's a, a failure in terms of goals, what are yeah. goals anymore, right? right? In this right. sort of post post reality uh, world, it keeps the machine going. The mach- yeah. the logic of the machine itself is what drives it. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. here we yeah. are. Oh. times i like this i i really admire this this piece of writing adam and the phrase unsociety hits me i've been trying to concoct my own uh neologism or way of describing it but i might adopt that because yeah yeah we don't yeah it it just (laughs) we don't we don't have a we don't have a society as far as i can tell uh You know, you can catch yeah, and, it in bits and bobs and little, you form your little subcultures and maybe you have a, you know, you do your little theater company, you have a band and you coalesce briefly, but it, it, it doesn't, the piece is no longer fit. Yeah. It, yeah. It certainly feels that way, doesn't it? It definitely feels mm-hmm. like there's some, there's some, something has been, and, and maybe it was never there, but man, it, mm-hmm. it seems like, it seems like we used to have something right. more approaching a, a a certain kind of stability or or cohesiveness or or even just yeah. that stuff just made more sense now it seems almost impossible to it, yeah I, it, this is interesting i want to tie this to a little bit and maybe it's a bad segue but who cares adam when we were leading up to this was sort of like well, what are we going to talk about and I'm glad you wanted to talk about the the I I hate the phrase nonfiction, but whatever. These pieces that David Foster Wallace was writing for various magazines, um, including the State Fair piece, the famous uh, cruise ship piece. And then y- you hipped me to the John McCain piece, which I had never read before. Um, and and well, we got to correct episode, ourselves. On, yeah, yeah, I was just going to yeah. say, yeah, in the core Go episode, ahead, yeah. I think we said that that essay was written for the 2008 election, but it was actually the 2000 election, which makes right. it like ancient history at this point. Right. And I I read that and was was sort of fascinated and trying to get my head around what was so compelling or about it. I mean, part of the thing was it was just a time capsule because you go back to the year 2000 and and there's a lot in the article about about, you know, kind of how it's all fake, how it's, you know, he's talking to these audiences, but he's really, McCain is, but he's really talking to the media and and trying to figure out, like, is McCain the real deal or is it all an act? And and at what point can you be the real deal and it turns into an act on its own sort of momentum? And reading it, I was like, I was thinking, it was like, their things are so much faker now than they were 23 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think like, I think what's, I think there's also a, a, a big joke in that essay. Hmm. You know, he opens it with sort of this excoriation of political marketing and theatrics mm-hmm. and then goes on to demonstrate exactly how someone becomes seduced by marketing and theatrics. By you know, himself basically being seduced or almost being seduced. Himself, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it comes down to the fact that like the best lie always starts with the grain of truth. You know, mm-hmm. John McCain, no one can read John McCain's biography and not be somewhat impressed. The man legitimately was a fucking soldier mm-hmm. who survived five years of torture and starvation. So mm-hmm. even if you know the guy's an absolute fucking hack mm-hmm. and an absolute demon on mm-hmm. par with the worst in American government, you still have trouble squaring that with the fact that he was once a young man, full of ideals, full of mm-hmm. courage, full mm-hmm. of strength. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Who is a legit hero? Like in that, yeah. like standing by your code, no matter what, like, old-fashioned american sense something that almost anybody could be proud of you know yes um and yeah and then <laughs> and that that part really that part when he was detailing what john mccain went through you know getting shot down you know breaking all kinds of bones um they were gonna the they were gonna let him out and he basically said no, I'm not getting let out. So the people who were in here before me get let out. And so they, and then they beat him up again. And it's just, this, and you know, to the end of his life, he can't pick his arms up over his head. It's just this horrific, 
all hellish scenario he lives through. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but that, that's, that is how politics and the own society functions. It has Mm, to start with something. Well, even Barack Obama, (sighs) Barack Obama, a hack, but come on, we're all fucking liberal men of a certain age. We're all going to be like, Wow, I can't believe a black guy made it this fucking far yeah. in politics. Right. It's still something legitimately impressive. Uh, I mean, I remember that election very well, and I remember uh, DFW politics at the time, and there was a, a an incredible subtext. I think it was even the context was like, we can get this guy in yeah. here now. Yeah. This yeah. is the shot because Hil- Hillary botched the Iraq vote. Mm-hmm. He He won on that Iraq vote. As far as I can tell, because people were so outraged. Getting back to McCain, how much of it is the desire for that generation of Americans on the right to salvage something respectable out of Vietnam? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And the dignity of it. Right. It happened for a reason, maybe, possibly, hopefully. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If he could have given birth to this redemptive hero, then maybe it's it is somehow worth it in some, you know, on some level for sure. But then but then the then the, the cynical side is that you yeah, you take that grain of truth and then that gets commodified and like processed down into its basic units and then gets sold used to sort of sell this guy's campaign. Well, McCain- exactly. And McCain wasn't really saying it's not like McCain was out there telling war stories, but it was always sort of like John McCain, well, who, by the well, way, the, is a war mm-hmm. hero. The is... Vietnam. I mean, what what the candidate did during Vietnam was on the uh, the ballot in every presidential election up until I think Obama, when Obama ran. Yeah. That yeah, was the yeah, first time it was out, like yeah. it was sort of not as much of an issue for both of the candidates. But prior to that, it was always. I mean, I, I think this essay, I think this essay, uh, Wallace's piece actually makes a good argument that it should have been part oh, of the it, conversation. I'm not saying it should yeah, have been, right. but I, yeah, right. You, you, it's just a big fact. It was a big factor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fascinating too, because like it, someone who's been through war, you know, the, the stance you, you would want them to logically take is a stance that is like preventative of right. we should avoid the this same fucking thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was never McCain's McCain's deal. It was always about like, you know, he went through the worst horror that world that war has to offer, but he still spent his kind of career um, with the valorist bullshit conception of what war is. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, went on to justify even, you know, bigger foreign policy disasters than, than Vietnam. Well, yeah. and, and now reattaching it to the current state of media, we have snuff films out of Ukraine on the timeline oh, God. daily. Yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah, just unreal. Yeah, sometimes with imagine. sometimes with soundtracks. <laughs> right. So right. weird. So yeah, weird well, I mean, the Azov Battalion—they never—they never knew like a, a a Jewish virgin who they didn't like to fucking crucify and hang up in public naked, now did they? Oh man, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yikes! It's, it's hardcore. Yeah. So well, this I'm makes glad me my think... taxpayers are going to these fucking yeah. sadistic psycho thugs in the fucking. Oh <laughs> yeah, it's great. Europe. Fighting for freedom. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking about this with my friend, with my friend recently. I was like, of course, when Amer- like, you know, everyone's a fascist, but when we like support a fascist, it can't even be like like the cool ones, you know? <laughs> like at least the early fascists, they were like artists and designers and philosophers. Mm-hmm. We gotta give our money to these like low IQ skinhead <laughs> fucking baboons. Right. who only live for like <laughs> death and mayhem and like uh, most can't even read right, wait, 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 right you, you were right. talking what was it you were talking about earlier crypto 
Uh, crypto transgressions. Transgression. Let's talk yeah. more about crypto trans- <laughs> transgression. <laughs> yeah. This is the Art of Darkness podcast, <laughs> artofdarkpod.com. Brad, yeah. what, what are we going to talk about on the After Dark well, for Patreon? Well, this is what, and I, I'll, I'll just float this to you guys, and you tell me if this is something we're talking about. I'm reading, I'm reading Adam's great essay about postmodern suicide, and I'm thinking about me. And I'm thinking about you, Kevin, and I'm thinking about Adam to the extent that I know Adam. And I'm thinking, this all sounds right, but why haven't any of the three of us killed ourselves? And so I want to talk about this maybe on the After Dark. Why have we survived if this is all if this is all the truth? Because I think this article is like spot on and yet. So we're going to I think I think we want to talk about that a little bit in the After Dark. That yeah. is a that is a very dark after dark topic. I'm looking forward to that. That is they probably get a little bit personal. I'm will I'm willing to jump in on that and, yeah. and hopefully Adam is too. Yeah. Uh, Adam, and I, I was I was get out a lot out of our conversations. It's really very cool to have you on. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward course. to your to your new book too. Yeah, late August. I'm hoping is when we can get it out by. Rock hey, and, and while we're talking about that, can sell us on the book that's already out the um conceptual manifesto for psychological warfare tell us Uh, tell us a little bit about that because it's a cool concept and i want people our audience to be familiar with it and go buy it oh yeah it's like a 200 point listicle that doubles as a 200 point uh work of pseudo philosophy i guess um and it's like uh how do I describe this? It's just like 200 bullet points of um, historical, artistic, and philosophical concepts uh, that illuminate what I think of as like when I think of the the term safety propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I first sort of just self-published it on Substack, and I had no intention of it being fucking 200 points, but as I am wont to do, that's what it exploded to. And then um, the publisher in the UK, Morbid Books, really liked it. And they're like, it's retarded that you have uh, 200 points on a fucking sub stack. So why don't we just put this in a book? Right on. So that yeah. was cool because like it gave me it gave me like a book, you know, it had gave me a project in between communions and this like long novel. Mm-hmm. So now I have like three books instead yeah. of um, only two. Yeah. Um, can I read I, one? Can I read one of the 200 bullet points? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for the audience. So you get a sense of what he's doing with this. Number four, neuro linguistic programming, NLP <laughs> and its practice. British Power Electronics Pioneers White House employed neuro-linguistic programming into their lyrics to persuade or even brainwash their listeners into certain thoughts and obsessions. And while NLP techniques have been discredited by the psychiatric community as a pseudoscience and quasi-religion, safety propaganda holds that through scientific and religious techniques, we can unbrainwash the masses, and thus we embrace NLP. There you go. And that felt actually, I can't quite put my finger on it, but that felt a little David Foster Wallace-ish uh, with a little bit more of an edge on it, a little bit more of the safety propaganda go hard to it. But I, that felt like a uh, a concept I could have seen. There is something in that and Infinite Jest that I feel like overlaps. Oh, sh- I mean, I think he probably was interested in NLP. Um, mm-hmm. There's certain phrases that he used that always really got stuck in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and full circle, the uh, Philip Best, who was once in uh, British Power Electronics Pioneers White House, is now my publisher. Oh, really? And Sulfate, you know? Oh, okay. Okay. See, I didn't know that connection. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Very cool. One Very of these, cool. Maybe that's why I haven't killed myself yet. It's because all my heroes <laughs> are my homies now. That's pretty cool. Right on. That's pretty cool. That's, a, that's one of the advantages of living in the... The unsociety is you get to sort of like recreate like partial little. That's kind of what Kevin was talking about, right? And just kind of make remake these connections. Um, yeah, interesting. So, um, yeah, thinking about it's sort of the- it's sort of about the death of authority in a lot of ways, right? I mean, that gravity that anchored us and gave us consensus reality has, I think, as we see the shape of the world play out eroded 
and I think we see more and more through the curtain and can kind of clearly see anybody who's paying attention. You just see raw power mm-hmm. is right there. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's hard to maintain um, genuine, the appearance of like a genuine benign authority uh, when the thuggishness is and the mob, the mobocracy is just right there in your face, undeniably. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, fun. yeah, and when yeah, once you can yeah, once you can, if and funnily enough, there a lot of that is um, what manages how it manages to sort of pull itself off is some version of neuro linguistic programming, right? Every time, yeah, repetition, that's what, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how you know when yeah. that's how you know when they talk about current thing, capital C, capital T. That's how you know a new current thing is because there's a new fre- catchy phrase of some kind, right? Oh, so all yeah. of a sudden, one day everything is one way, the next day everything is a threat mm-hmm. to democracy. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. is it really a threat to you know? But everything's the, getting called mm-hmm. that, right? The COVID like, deployment was so obvious. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Adam. Yeah. And how retarded do you have to be to even like still care or think that democracy is real? <laughs> it's a threat to the democracy that I have no say in whatsoever. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, absolute. Yeah, yeah it's it's uh, third grade reading level. This yeah. is here. So here's here's a quote from that McCain that McCain piece on David Foster Wallace. Uh, David Foster Wallace's John McCain piece that I thought was interesting, and I'm just curious what you know either you guys might think of this. Um, he says, and he's not 100 serious. He unpacks this or whatever, but. He says, if you are bored and disgusted by politics and don't bother to vote, you are, in effect, voting for the entrenched establishments of the two major parties. Is that true? I don't know. (laughs) I have mixed feelings about this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of a Gen X-y sort of liberal kind of idea. Um, Right. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this. I mean, we're seeing this now too, where it's sort of like oh, we're just going to get the same, the same. We're just like going to rehash the last election. Apparently, is what's going to happen, and that's somehow something's going to be different or better now. Uh, Either way, I know the Democrats <laughs> are already like rolling out alternative candidates and like pretending they're mad about them when, right? <laughs> when, when in reality, it's like electorally, it makes perfect sense what they're doing. It's like. Mm-hmm. Let's find this really intelligent, um, honest guy from a noblesse oblige old political family because mm-hmm. uh, we can get back those voters who mm-hmm. hate COVID and are maybe sick of like, um, you know, black skitzed out homeless people trying to stab them every time they go to work. Right, um, right. But, yeah. but are also like um, not so into uh, abortion hysteria or whatnot right and right. it's not even that like rfk might mean what he says but that's just like his electoral role i mean we're sure the, right yeah i like, mean all it, these... yeah you don't yeah he'll be well that's 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 i mean they'll, they'll signal boost him to the degree that it's helpful yeah that's yeah. part of i mean that's part of the thesis of the mccain piece wallace's mccain piece is like even if you start out authentic you know, say RFK is he means every single word that he says he will then get caught up in the machine and used by it for whatever ends it deems necessary right yeah um, yeah yeah well so, he, he yeah. used that phrase entrenched interest of the two political parties or whatever mm-hmm. it would be I would love if it felt like they were in a trench and entrenched it feels like they've dug a hole through the earth now right yeah. so I think yeah. we're at a new there that that doesn't apply anymore. I'd be very curious what he would write if he was looking at the landscape today. Absolutely. It's not a trench. It's a bottomless pit at this point. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, yeah. is the saddest thing about losing him and someone like, I mean, Mike Kelly would have been so important to, to have in the art world right now just because he was the only guy who ever seemed to negate the, the retarded shit that came out of MFA programs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, tell, uh, can what, tell us? I don't know. I don't know Kelly. Can you can you tell us a little bit about him? I thought he was your cousin, did. Brad. Come no, on, you all no, you it, don't get Kelly together. He's not in the Kelly. Uh, oh, it's a different. Kelly oh, the other e Kelly Kelly's, group Kelly's chat. At Abney. We've been. Yeah, at they war can for never meet. Yeah, we can't <laughs> get them together. Yeah. Um, well, Mike Kelly was is generally regarded as one of the most important artists of the late American artists of the late twentieth. Um, 
he has an interesting life. He was in a band um, in Michigan called Destroy All Monsters. Oh, yeah. That name rings a bell for sure. Yeah. You know, they, they even played with uh, Jim from the Stooges at one point. Um, and they were sort of like an early example of uh, chaotic noise rock, but definitely much more like art faggy than something like the Stooges. And then three out of four of its members all moved to LA to go to um, LACMA. Uh, that was Mike Kelly, Jim Shaw, and um, oh, fuck, who was the other one? The other guy made some cool, oh, Kerry Loren. Kerry Loren's a really cool uh, film archivist now. Okay. Um, Jim Shaw became an important artist in his own right, but he's also just like an irredeemable like, don't look at this guy's uh, recent work, you know, um, like anti-Trump sort of hysteria boomer. Mm. and that. But Mike Kelly was always of a rare kind of brilliance and um, like fiercely honest disposition. His work is very funny. Um, he's done painting, but I'd say it's his film and his performance work. That was probably the most important. Also, he did these huge sculptural installations where he incorporate children, stuffed animals and, um, and, and the works would communicate, you know, sort of nostalgia, um, loss of meaning, all these things. And then he was also a fantastic uh, art critic, honestly, one of the best art critics of his time, even though he wasn't always a super grammatically sharp writer. Um, and and I, I just feel like if there's anybody uh, in the late 20th century who's like, who's a visual artist that I feel deeply influenced by, it'd be like either him or maybe Matthew Barney, but Matthew Barney's more from like a formalist standpoint, whereas Mike Kelly is like, he's literally me or whatever. right right yeah. interesting okay yeah. okay very um, cool man yeah i'm looking at some of these uh i guess sculptures or whatever you'd call them of uh like the teddy bears and the stuffed animals and yeah i could see how the, this would have a a pull mm -hmm. yeah and he also did these um candors they were called they were all these like uh glow in the dark neon halogen recreations of um superman's home planet hmm. which sounds like a hokey idea but he retched uh something kind of beautiful out of it hmm. and this whole idea of just like being this supreme alien being in a world full of alienated stupid shitbag humans <laughs> you know it was like yeah. a very sort of brutal artwork in a lot of ways huh yeah i'll look i will look for that i'll, I'll find some of that and blast it out on the twitter for sure um as we kind of get approach the end of the, the 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 free portion for people here um i wanted to ask adam you know you've got you're working in so many disciplines genre whatever um where do you feel how would you characterize the influence of david foster wallace on you or, or if you would at all i mean do you feel the the weight or the influence or the gravity of david foster wallace when you're working on stuff the direct influence was definitely he got me interested in like doing kind of journalism pieces or thinking that it might be an interesting thing to do mm -hmm. um, i used to kind of have like Honestly, like ending up a writer, even though that's what I'm most known for, it was kind of um, something that I was trying to avoid for a long time. Like I really wanted to be a sculptor, a photographer, hmm. one of those two things, um, but was limited by uh, physical talent. <laughs> that's always so, a problem. That's always a problem, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a lot I mean, of stuff I'd like to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I still do some of that. I mean, I'm going to have, I have a couple artworks and a show in Norway this summer, actually. Oh, cool. so it's like oh, they're, cool. they're hey, asking cool. me to come back now. Yeah. yeah that rocks. Um, but it was like, you know, David Foster Wallace was this sort of like icon of literature. And then, you know, someone start um, it was actually that teacher, David Samuels, who told me to check out his, uh, like his magazine writing. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, like the way he's doing this, he's not doing like straight journalism. He's almost doing this kind of like Dadaism where everything he's reporting has like a double meaning or has a meaning that cancels one meaning out or like he's not, you know, it's in, it's, um, it's like Picasso said, uh, art is a lie that excavates the truth. Mm -hmm. And David Foster Wallace constantly toyed with untruths, falsities. Mm -hmm. He did this in both fiction and nonfiction. And that to me was incredibly inspiring. And honestly, I think um, one of the justifying things for me when I started doing like, you know, bland magazine work is when I realized I could do something sort of formally interesting with it. And um, not just him, like Lester Bangs and Grail Marcus, you know, guys like that were important for that kind of thing too. But um And then the other thing is just like, he's probably the last pop literary icon we'll ever have. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone knows the image of him with the headband. Yeah. He's handsome. He's got long hair. It looks like he's important. (laughs) And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, he's kind of Franzen had his moment, but not quite the same. Is and it? I and, and I'm a supporter of friends and you know mm-hmm. I I, yeah. I I think um it's become a libtard pastime to sort of counter signal friends and even though libtards created friends and oh they love it they love nothing more that's their favorite yeah. thing is to create yeah. somebody and, the, and, and bring them back them. down and that's, I you know, I'd like any of them to write the corrections you know sure it's not gonna yeah. fucking happen right <laughs> um But I think there's just something about David Foster Wallace that is a bit more metaphysically rich. He he has the enigma, he has the genius, he has the image, and he also is important at a time which might have, you know, literally the end of the 20th century, the last time when people felt that the world might have meaning. Right. And he's sort of chronicling the collapse of meaning right before the 21st century takes off, the internet takes over the world, and no one knows how to read anymore. Mm. Um, so yeah. he's just like, a, he's a, a fascinating historical figure. And honestly, it's become kind of weird the extent to which he's almost fallen out of fashion again. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to, you know, with you guys doing the show and some other things, I think we might come to a period where people start to reappraise him um, without the fucking faggot criticism that he was like getting for so long. Yeah. Right. People love like the, 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 the ultimate signifier of the modern world is being triggered by legitimate greatness. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they, one of the, it's why they love Biden. Exactly. Yeah. Like there's nothing that just gets under people's skin than being legitimately great. It's why John Jones is the most hated fighter in the M- MMA. Mm-hmm. It's why whatever, you know, yeah, like yeah. people 100% just don't. They, well, it, it applies. I mean, it, it's all Marxism and it applies to the hate the great man theory of history. And right. they, so it they don't want to elevate greatness unless it ticks off certain right. qualifiers for them, which <laughs> yeah, is all it, part of making history, which is right. their project because they want to move the dialectic forward to the great future utopia well, that we all well, and know. It's, well, it's, mm. it's, it's funny, some of the techniques that were used to try and take down his reputation, which was like, there were articles written about how insufferable people who read David Foster Wallace are. And that was supposed to be some kind of critique of David Foster Wallace. It's like, Smart people. Yeah, I mean, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's let's kind of close it out. We'll, we'll, we're gonna we're gonna come back in, in the after dark. We're gonna talk about basically how the three of us have managed to survive postmodern suicide. I want to also ask Adam the question: uh, Would lifting have saved David Foster Wallace's life? I know he's got some opinions on that, but I'm curious to see. Um, uh, yeah, so so join us for that. Uh, Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. If you sign up, you get these uh, bonus twenty to thirty minute episodes for each episode. But you also get access to the book club, which has been a hoot so far. Um, basically, we read a book, 
you all hang out with us in the, in the Zoom at a, at a given time. The recording is available for Patreon supporters only. It's been a really it's been a really good time. So uh, definitely, and Aaron Gwynn will be joining us next <laughs> month for. Yeah book club he's the author of all god's children and without uh question uh, we'll include adam's uh, new novel in the book club next year Uh, you You heard it here first (laughs) awesome true faith faith. will you Mm -hmm. join us for that when we when we have the goddamn right i will all right let's do it awesome yeah Sweet. All right. Hey, let's uh, let's come back on the after dark. Adam, thank you so much. Uh, we'll put a link to your Twitter handle in the uh, show notes. The great Adam there. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>